Good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you're listening to this, I hope it's good for you. And I'm really glad you've joined us. And if it's not so good for you, maybe by the time we're finished, it'll be a whole lot better. That's what we hope, isn't it? I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. This is the place where we stretch each other in God's direction, where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we prod each other in that direction so that we can develop that kind of confidence in God because he wants us to trust him. He wants to show himself trustworthy, and we just need to learn to trust him. I want to take you back many years, and I was thinking about this because of the story from the scriptures we're going to look at today, but I remember when I was very young, I don't even know how old I was. Obviously, I was old enough to remember, but I don't remember how old I was. I suppose I could figure it out, but that's not really so important. But I remember going to church, and we went to church every Sunday. My family was involved in everything, and and that was fine by me. I remember enjoying it and, and participating in things. And at that age, I can particularly remember the decision was made that we were going to build a new church, a new building adjacent to and connecting to the existing building. Well, I thought that was fine. I thought it was great. What did I know? I didn't know anything about it, except that I thought it was good. Let's do it. And I remember my father would go sometimes in the evenings, join the other men of the church, and they would work on things. I remember some Saturdays we worked on things. Lots of people from the church were there working on things to get it ready. I remember there were some efforts to pay for the building. There always are efforts for that. And I remember they challenged us, even though we were kids, to help with that project. I don't remember now how I did it or how they encouraged us to do it or, or what, but they encouraged them, all of, any kid who wanted to, to give the money. And I think they gave us some ideas of how we might earn the money, but to give the money to buy one of the bushes that would be part of the landscaping outside. And they said that if we would do that, they would put a tag on that bush and that tag would have our name on it. So that would be our bush that we contributed to the project. And I remember thinking that was great. And I remember somehow, I don't know how I managed. I, I honestly have no clue where the money came from, but I was able to, to give the money that purchased a bush that was outside the church. And, and I remember they showed me which bush was mine, showed me my name on the tag on the bush. And for many years, I remember always noticing that bush. Even after we moved away from there, I remember noticing that bush whenever we would drive back in that area to visit family or, or whatever. Usually it was visiting family, and, and we'd drive by the church, and I remember looking out the window. I didn't say anything to anybody, but I'd look out the window to see my bush. I guess it really meant something to me. And then I remember one time going back, and that was many years later, and, and I was I may have been an adult by now, but driving through the town and looking over and there was the church and looking and my bush was gone. There was an air conditioner sitting where my bush had been. And I remember thinking that was the most interesting thing. Well, by that time, I wasn't particularly disappointed. I understood those were, were the way things happened. But I remember that building project very well for that, 
I remember one of the things I remember my father doing was the men of the churches, the pews came unassembled. And in those days, churches used wooden pews. And to save some money, the church ordered them unassembled. And so the men would get together on evenings after work and assemble the pews. And I remember going and, and being there when they were doing that work. I don't remember whether I contributed anything to the assembly. I don't think I did. I was probably too young for that. But I was a part of it. I remember particularly the days leading up to the final completion of the project. And there were a lot of people that would come and work to clean up and do the final touches of things. And, and I really didn't know what I could contribute, but I was there because both my parents were there and where else would I be? My sister and I were there. And I remember that somebody gave me a job and I thought, okay, I didn't know too much about it, but they showed me that some of the trim strips on the pews had places where the nails had been driven in and somebody needed to go along and put putty in those spots to cover up the nail hole. And so I did some of that in the, in the sanctuary of the church. And in particular, I remember that I did every single one in the choir loft. Well, that was participation. That was being involved. That was a new project. And then of course, I remember the Sunday that we began to have services in that new building. We all first gathered in the old sanctuary, and then we walked over some kind of procession. I don't remember how that was. I remember they let the kids go first. So I was close to the front of the line. I don't know if I was first, second or third, doesn't matter. But I was so eager to get in there and, and be a part of that. And sure enough, we did. And I know there was a later, there was a dedication of the church. I don't remember that, but it was a big deal a very big deal to have that new building. And today we're going to look at the story in the Old Testament of Solomon and the very big deal that he built a temple for Yahweh, a temple for the Lord. And the Lord did not have a permanent temple at all up until this point, and it was a very, very big deal. Now, a little context of the story, you probably remember that Israel left Egypt, went to the Promised Land, set up the, their home in the promised land after a period of time and a lot of stress and strains for a lot of reasons, not the least of which they didn't obey God. But they were finally settled in the, in the land that God had given them. They had relief from their enemies. They had a king, started out with King Saul, who did not measure up to God's expectations. And so God abandoned him and, and had Samuel anoint David as king. So David was king, and he's the one that led the people through the uh, stresses and strains of their enemies. He's the one who defeated Goliath and ultimately defeated their enemies so that there was peace in the land. And yet he wanted to build a temple to the Lord, but God said, no, it's not for you to do. It's for your son to do. And so that's where we come to the story today. Solomon was now king. Last week, we talked about how Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom and then some, also honor and riches. And now it's a lot of years later, and Solomon has completed the construction of the temple with God's blessing this time. God told David no, but Solomon yes. And so we pick up the story on the day that they dedicated the temple that Solomon and the people had built. So let's just read from 1 Kings chapter 8, we'll read a little bit of the story of them 
gathering there in the temple and of that first service, we would say, at the temple. First Kings chapter eight, starting with verse one, I'm reading from the New International Version. It may or may not be like the one you use, but I think you'll be able to follow the story quite well, no matter which one you might be following along with. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the Israelites came together in, to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanaim, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord in the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from the outside of the holy place, and they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Such a, an amazing picture of that first time at the temple, such an amazing picture, and so many references, and the story goes on. We just couldn't read all of it. The story goes on with Solomon leading the people and with Solomon's extensive prayer but this gives us a beginning to begin to think about the significance of the temple, the importance of the temple, and, and what was going on here. And there's a lot more that was going on than we'll really be able to talk about, but we're going to hit, hit a lot of it. And one of the things that I've noticed, and, and, and I hope you begin to notice too, if you haven't, maybe you already have, is how God uses things repeatedly through the story of his work with his people so that we'll catch on, I think, to, to what he's trying to do. So we'll, we'll understand. And so there are a lot of connections that are made from this story of the dedication of the temple to the history of God's people. And then we can see how what has happened as God has worked and led and guided his people, how that helps us understand some of the significant events that took place in the New Testament that have real meaning for us today. So hang on, we're going to go through a lot of things. Hopefully, we can connect some things of the story of God, and we can build ourselves up so that we can have more confidence in God and a better understanding that will support that confidence of what God has been up to in salvation history. So there are several things that jump out at us over the this temple story, and Let's just plunge in with the first one, and that's the ark. Uh, 
or we might say the Ark of the Covenant. Usually we just shorten it and refer to it as the Ark, but I guess I should, should make sure we remember we're not talking about Noah's Ark. We're talking about a different Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, even though we usually just say Ark, it more officially would be known as the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box covered with gold, with rings on the corners so it could be carried. It was made out of an expensive wood, and it was completely covered with gold, precious metal gold. It wasn't real large. It was about three and three-fourths feet long and about two and one-fourth feet wide and high. So you get the idea. It wasn't really very big. Early on in the story of the, of the ark, and when God had them build the ark, they put some things in it. It was an empty box otherwise, but, but there are three notable things that were put in the ark at one point. Two of the stone tablets that Moses brought down from Sinai when he and God met up there, and God gave what we refer to as the Ten Commandments. He gave other instructions as well, but it's kind of capsulized by the Ten Commandments. We think of it that way, and, and that's a good way to think of it. It really represents those Ten Commandments, represent God giving them the law so they would understand how to get along with a holy God. So in the, in the ark, there were those stone tablets, and there was also, at, at one point, a sample of manna, the food that God gave his people in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt and needed something just to keep themselves alive. And there was also Aaron's staff that had budded, and it was placed in the ark at one time. Now, at this point in the story, when they get to the, the dedication of the temple, the scriptures tell us that only the stone tablets from Moses remained in the ark. The other things had either been lost or perhaps they had, um, had simply decayed beyond usefulness, and so they had discarded them. We really don't know. But the ark has moved, and it's, and it's very interesting to notice, and we, and we should notice that the ar ar ark is picked up by the priests. Now, picked up means they used those long poles, and I mentioned that it had rings for on each of the corners, those rings were, were there so they could slide the poles in, and they were supposed to carry it by those poles, and people weren't supposed to handle the ark, they weren't supposed to touch it. And there was a terrible story from earlier on when David tried to move the ark to his city and to, and to honor it, and they didn't move it properly, and a man died because of that. Well, here they moved it properly, carried it up by those poles, in fact, the story talks about how they could see the, the carrying poles from just outside the most holy place, but not from other places. So it reinforced that they had moved it correctly. They moved the tent of meeting where it had been housed, and they moved all of the holy vessels up to the newly built temple, moved them in. Now, there were a lot of utensils, we might say, or holy items that that God had instructed them to use. They supported temple worship, but the primary focus of the temple was the Ark of the Covenant. And so Solomon and the people of, of Israel, as we read in the story, preceded the Ark up to the new temple, and they sacrificed uncountable numbers of animals, giving honor to the Lord, offering sacrifice to him. When the priests got up to the, to the new temple, they carried the ark into the, to what we now call the most holy place. 
and they placed that ark in its place beneath the wings of the cherubim. Now, the cherubim were, were creatures that were created. We might call them statues of some kind. They were not representatives of God. That was clearly forbidden. But they were there symbolically protecting the ark, showing that this was the place of God's glory, and that God's glory would then protect and take care of the ark. And so the ark was placed under those wings just as another symbol of God's provision to take care of of his holy place and the things that were there and the symbolism that they represented, because the symbolism pointed to the deeper meaning, including the, the stone tablets there, obviously pointing to the, the importance of the covenant. And so they, they place those in there, the priests come out, they leave the most holy place and, and all that's supposed to be in there. And when they exit, a most interesting thing happens. Scriptures tell us that when the priests exited the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. Now, that's a very interesting description, because we don't tend to think of clouds filling our churches. But here it says the cloud filled the temple, and it says that, that the glory of the Lord was so great with that filling of the temple that the priests could not continue their ministerial service. They had to stop what they were doing. The glory of the Lord was so intense, they could not continue. The cloud had filled the place with such majesty that it brought everything to a stop. Really quite a stunning, a, a, a stunning idea, a stunning event that God would bring everything to a stop by filling the place with his glory. Now, that didn't last forever. They ended up going ahead and, and being able to continue. But this is what happened up to that point, and it was because they had put the ark in place, and God had come to the place they had built, and it was set aside for his visible, as much as he could be visible, presence among God's people. Well, the ark had a long history, and so we should remind ourselves of, of what it did. Not only does, do we understand the description of it, but it was built at Sinai when Moses and the people there met with God, and God was giving them instructions about how to go forward. And it represented from that time on God's presence with his people, and it was a reminder of God's covenant with his people. See, God had started this idea of the cloud beforehand, and then it kept going to, to Sinai with them, but then the cloud and the ark began to be visible representatives of God's presence, and they proceeded together from Sinai on. And the ark was very important because God had said to them, you, you need to, to build a tabernacle around the ark. It would be a temporary place where God could dwell with his people. See, God seemed to want to be with his people. And so the ark represented that. And they, sure enough, they had the tabernacle there and they built the tabernacle, put up the, the tent, the temporary meeting place for God. And, and God dwelt there among the people. When the people stopped traveling and set up camp, 
the tabernacle with the ark as a central feature was in the center of the camp. They, they put all of their tribes around that central focus of the ark. When it was time to move on to the next place, the ark always went before them, demonstrating that God was leading them. That was just one of the symbols that God used so that people would know he was with them. Well, there was some loss of the ark along the way, and as I mentioned, David then had to recover it after the, after the Philistines decided they didn't want it. It was causing them trouble, and David finally heard about it and went to retrieve it. There was a, the loss of life over moving it incorrectly and a man reaching out and touching it, and he wasn't supposed to do that. But finally, David moved it to a place near the city he had chosen and put it in what turned out to be a temporary location because God had said, no, you're not going to build the, the permanent temple for me. And all along, the ark reminded God's people that God was with them and that they had a covenant with God. Well, the ark being the central focus then drew God in, and God used another symbol that he had used before to demonstrate that he really was there in, in, in completeness and in fullness. And so we go back to the story of the Exodus, and the people are leaving Egypt, and God leads them with a cloud during the day, and what's described in some English translations as a pillar of fire, the cloud turned to fire at night so that they could see, the people could see that God was with them. One of the greatest things that, that people talk about is the, is the sense that God is with them. And so this was a way that God could show that because God knew better than they did what was ahead of them and the challenges they were going to face. And so he led them out and he led them in the, in the direction and the, by the path he wanted them to go. And he led them up to what we call the Red Sea, sometimes referred to as the Reed Sea. He led them up to the Red Sea, and they didn't have any way to get across. Well, maybe they could figure that out, but lo and behold, they look behind them, and here comes the Egyptian army. They decided they weren't too happy that they had left slavery in Egypt, and so the Egyptian army came after them. And the people naturally, they were a little concerned, <laughs> a little more than a little concerned. They cried out to Moses. Moses talks to God, and God says, I got this. And the result was the crossing of the Red Sea on dry land. You remember the story, the wind blew, the waters parted, the people went across. But what we sometimes forget is that the cloud at that point, while the sea was being prepared, and then while the people were going across, the cloud, the symbol of God's presence, and, and we could say, and there's a lot of ways you could do this, and I'm sure I won't mention all of them, but the covering protection of God that's represented by the cloud above the people, well, that cloud moved behind the people and stopped between the people and the Egyptian army so that they, the Egyptian army could not get to God's people. And they crossed on dry land. The waters came back together. The Egyptian army was destroyed, and God led his people on to Sinai. That was all part of what the cloud did. That was all part of the cloud's function. And, and no, we're not talking about cloud like we use the term in computer technology. We're talking about real visible clouds so, and real visible fire at night. So having led them through that crisis of getting out of Egypt, God now leads them to Sinai. Well, at Sinai, there's a, 
several remarkable events. One of the most notable is that God comes down to the top of the mountain and meets Moses there, and he comes down, and you may remember the story, comes down, the mountain shakes. There's amazing physical demonstrations of God's presence. He comes down, there's lightning flashing and, and all these visible images that the people can see while Moses is up on the mountain waiting to meet God, and, and they see a cloud comes down, and there's smoke, and, and there's this visible, generally speaking, cloud at Sinai demonstrating that God had come to talk to Moses. Well, that's a pretty big deal. Well, the story goes on, you know, about the sin of the people and the golden calf, and ultimately Moses gets everything corrected, and he gets the law from God, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And it was there that God instructs the people to build the tabernacle that we talked about to house the ark. And, and it was properly constructed. The utensils that God had instructed them to make were prepared and placed. And they came to the point of dedicating the tabernacle. And lo and behold, what happens then? Well, the cloud comes down and covers and fills the tabernacle. So when it is said to us at the time of the dedication of the temple that a cloud came down. One of the things we notice is, well, uh, I guess that's pretty normal. That's the way God has been showing himself to his people for a long time. And so it is. The tabernacle, God comes and covers it and fills it with the cloud of his glory and of his presence. When it comes to the dedication of the temple, it's a normal expectation. God comes and cloud and fills it with his presence so much that the priest can't, can't minister before God. So, so the idea of a cloud is not an unusual thing, except to us. Now, it wasn't meteorological. It wasn't weather cloud. It was a cloud of God's glory, and it was a physical, visible representation that God was there with his people in the temple, dwelling amongst the people. And when Solomon moved the, the ark to the new temple, it was reestablishing God's rightful place in the central life of his people. It wasn't that David put it in the wrong place. It was just now Solomon had permission from God to build the temple, and he did that. In what, and the location is well known. It's, it's called the Temple Mount. It's in Jerusalem. You can go see it today. And that's where the glory of the Lord comes and fills the temple. We also know that there are other demonstrations of this vis visible presence of God with the people because I, uh, not Isaiah, Ezekiel tells about how he saw the glory of the Lord leave the temple and leave the city. One of the saddest things you look at when you think about how amazing it was that God filled the temple, then you see Ezekiel talking about how the Lord left the temple. And he did that, and it was a visible, uh, a visible demonstration that the people had abandoned God, and, and he could no longer feel welcome, is one way to think of it, in the city, in the temple, and he leaves. And the glory of him coming and dwelling with his people is, is matched by the sadness of him leaving. Well, the good news is later in Ezekiel chapter 43, he talks about how God's glory returns. But again, this is a symbol 
that that is repeated and, and becomes normative because of the way God used it in the scriptures. And we need to think carefully about how that affects us and what that means to us, because it wasn't the last time God would use symbolism like that. And one of the great things about the way God tells the story is that he uses some of these repeated images to remind us and to reinforce some important things about him. One of those is he wants to be with his people. They did not have to beg him to come and cover and fill the tabernacle. I don't, don't see any recording that God was begged to come to the temple. God came down. He wanted to be with his people. He wanted to show that he was there for his people and with them. And sure enough, he did. I guess you could say, and I, and I do not mean this in any way except reverently, I guess you could say Solomon and the people put God in his place, in his holy place. And when we do that, we should look around to see what God is going to do. For God wants to dwell with his people, and he wants us to put him in his rightful place. And they put him in his rightful place there at the temple in Jerusalem. Well, just a minute, we're going to take a look at what that means for us today in a little more detail and, and continue the story and, and look forward as well as backward to what was going on with the dedication of the temple and how God showed himself to his people. So take a little break, stand and stretch, refill your cup of tea or your cup of coffee, pick up your Bible, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. This is Faith Is, and I hope you'll be with me when we get right back. Because of COVID-19, the average American worries about their immune health four times a day. That's 112 times per year. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains 15 full doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day pill-free gel pack. It tastes great, is convenient on the go, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -E -L -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. As we celebrate our five-year anniversary, America Out Loud has expanded its mission through a newly designed website with a host of new contributors, all carrying a vibrant message of hope and survival for this country we love. AmericaOutloud.com. Together, we'll secure the future for generations to come. glad you're still with us. We've been talking about the temple and specifically the dedication of Solomon's temple 
and all that was taking place and what it means, what it meant, what it's going to mean for us going forward. And we want to talk about that a little bit more as we get to it. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I am the pastor of Diplomat Westland Church in Cape Coral, Florida. My appreciation to our church and for their support of this effort to bring you these programs every week. We hope they benefit you. That's why we do them. We don't do them for our amusement. We do them for your edification, to build you up, to help you stretch in God's direction, to help you have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So we've been talking about the temple. We talked about the the ark being put in place. We talked about the cloud filling the temple. We talked about the amazing things that happen when we put God in his place, in his rightful place. And, And we don't tend to think the same way people in those days did about about the temple, about a place for God's dwelling. And God had not required them to to make a place for him other than the tabernacle. He was fine with that. One of the things that is true about the the temple is that it really was a place, a visible place, so people would know that God dwelt among his people. But it was also recognized that putting God in his rightful place in the temple— also fully recognized that God could not, cannot be contained. There's no way they could contain him, and Solomon mentions that in in some of his his statements and prayers, that while this was a place for God to to be with his people, it it also was well recognized that nothing could contain God. So, thinking of all of that, we also ought to add one more thing to that. Not only does God need to be put in his place, in his rightful place, not only is it true that he cannot be contained by heaven or earth or anything else, but it's also true that he must not be left out. And so he demonstrates that he wants to be the center of our lives and our attention by him moving into the temple. So let's, let's think about that today. Now, I mentioned the excitement I had as a kid when we had a new church, and, and we don't think about temples today the way they did in those days. We don't even call our churches temples. We call them churches for the most part. Sometimes people will refer to their church as a temple. And, and it should remind us of a couple of things. It was important enough for God to, to ask Solomon to build this. And sometimes we don't take our church facilities as seriously as maybe we should. And the temple was the center of worship of God, and he meant for people to show up at the temple. And yes, today I'm convinced he still means for us to show up at church. That's why it was so horrible when churches were told they couldn't meet, because God has consistently called his people to move themselves physically from where they are to where he is, so to speak, and actually by their physical moving demonstrate their faithfulness to God. The other thing, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later on, is that the New Testament also refers to how we physically, our physical bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit. And so that gives us a little beginning to look at what does the story of the the temple mean for us today. It reminds us that it does make a difference when we physically show up at a place, and it's also important for us to recognize that our bodies are 
a temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, before we get to that, let's take a brief reminder of the whole concept of covenant, because part of what was going on when Solomon dedicated the temple was a reminder that God had entered into covenant with his people. And that's a much longer story and more involved than we can cover, except at a very uh, 40,000-foot level, we might say. But it started with Abraham when God came to Abraham and invited him into covenant partnership, and Abraham agreed. The covenant continued. It it was demonstrated when Moses came to get the people out of Egypt, and they had that Passover meal. And God came and said, you need to sprinkle blood on the doorposts of your houses that I will protect you from the death that is coming to the firstborn of the households of Egypt. And so they did, and God protected them, and he led them out with the cloud and the fire, and he still leads and protects his people as he led and protected them. They go to Sinai, and as we said, God descends in that cloud, and all of the thunder and smoke and the blowing of the ram's horn and all of the things that went with that just drew people's attention to that, and Sure enough, that idea of God descending in a cloud is right there, front and center, and God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, really the law that people were to follow, the terms of their covenant. And it was a very important step because the people who had lived in slavery and who had not worshipped God appropriately now had that covenant relationship renewed. They built the ark there. They put it in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was filled and covered by the glory of God. When it was time for them to move on, the cloud moved in front of the people. They packed up the tabernacle, the ark, and they carried the ark out front, demonstrating that God was leading the people, and they would follow the cloud and the ark wherever God led them, until ultimately we come to the temple story. We're we're skipping some details. You get that. The temple story, and, and again, at this pivotal moment, Solomon is reminding the people of God's faithfulness, how God had kept his promises, and how the covenant remained a great benefit to all of them. And so we come to the the pinnacle of worship, you might say, with the establishment of the temple. It became the focal point of worship of Yahweh for many years, and it became a, a powerful demonstration to the people of God being among them and with them. Well, let's take that and let's fast forward a lot of years and remind ourselves that there was another demonstration similar to the cloud and the noise of Sinai, similar to the filling and covering of the tabernacle and the temple. And we don't necessarily connect them all together, but I'm certain that they can be because God has revealed himself in such similar fashion through through these various episodes. Well, on the day of Pentecost, the house where those people were was filled with a powerful noise like a, a violent wind, and there were tongues of fire that came down and rested on them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It sounds a lot like that visible manifestation of God when he came and covered and filled the tabernacle, and when he filled the temple to the extent that they could no longer carry out their duties, the priests could no longer carry out their their duties. And so when God comes in the person of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, 
I suppose we shouldn't be so so surprised that God shows up and shows himself in the same way he had in these other instances. Really quite remarkable, quite remarkable what God has done. So let's unpack a little bit of what might be going on here relative to the coming of God to his people at Pentecost. So I want to mention several things, and, and, and hopefully you'll see the connection and the, and the kind of the flow of how these kind of fit together. Well, there was a physical temple in the Old Testament. Uh, it went through stresses and strains of being destroyed because of the unfaithfulness of God's people and being rebuilt and all of those things, but it still represented at its best, and it had the purpose of demonstrating that God was present with and for his people. Well, we come to the New Testament, and Jesus promised that after he went back to the Father that he would send the Holy Spirit, and he did. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, we are reminded that our bodies are a sacred place. The place of the Holy Spirit is the way one English translation puts it. Now, usually we think, and we've heard it said, and we've heard this quote, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. That's, a, that's appropriate and, and true. I really like that, that English translation, the message, when it said your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit. Well, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, he filled the people and that's what he did to the temple. It was a sacred place, a sacred moment. Sometimes we think of our bodies differently, and in the context there in 1 Corinthians is dealing with certain types of sin. But in, the, but in the bigger scheme of things, the important principle is that, hey, you shouldn't engage in this kind of stuff because your body is a sacred place, and it's the place where the Holy Spirit came to dwell so that you would know that God is with you. So I find that very interesting and very much a parallel in what God had done in the Old Testament, including the dedication of the temple. So let's continue to think about what does that mean and, and what, does that, what might that mean for us? Well, one of the stories that has always fascinated me that, that connects to all of this, and I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this, is, is the story in Luke chapter 11. I'm not really sure where to pick it up, so I'm just going to pick it up at verse 9. Right before that, there's the story Jesus tells of, of someone who goes to his friend and asks for help because he needs bread to, to be a good host to a visitor that's come to his house. And Jesus continues after that story, and he says this in Luke chapter 11, verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, who, re, who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, I have long thought that was the most fascinating thing that Jesus says there. It's just, it, 
especially when he says that phrase, how much more? You know, so many times we, we think we need to beg God for the things we need, and it's appropriate to tell God our needs and to trust him to be with us and to help us. But here, it's a totally different perspective on what God is, is telling us. It's more about God's eagerness than it is about our needing to, to encourage him to give to us. So in verse 9, he says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Well, I remember again, you may remember too, when we're young, we read things like that. We think, man, I sure like a new bicycle. And so we ask God for a new bicycle. And um, I've never heard anybody that has talked about asking God for a bicycle, um, realizing that request. Now, God has, through parents, given kids bicycles, but he doesn't just present us all of a sudden a bicycle. Um, that's a little little off from what he's talking about here. But what isn't off is the demonstration that God is saying to us how eager he is to give. He doesn't show any reluctance there to give of himself or to help his people. It's clear in the language of that chapter, starting with verse 9, that God wants to, wants to help his people. And, and maybe we need to think about God that way and, and think about, look how God has helped instead of look how much we wish God would do. Uh, maybe we've gotten that wrong. Maybe we've failed to recognize that God has helped us more than we know, because it's clear he's eager to do that. But then in verse 11, it takes another little interesting turn, and it says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Now, I can almost hear some people saying, well, if you knew what my father was like, you wouldn't be using that comparison. Well, believe me, we all know that, that fathers sometimes don't do so well. And those of us who are fathers, we know we make mistakes. But Jesus is here using the normative idea of a father who cares about his children. And there are so many times that we need to acknowledge that fathers stand in the gap for their children. And so we understand what he's saying here. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Well, we just wouldn't do that. We, we care about our children. We wouldn't treat them that way. He goes on, verse 12, or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Well, I remember when we saw a scorpion in the family room of our house years ago. Wow, that was quite a shock. I would never give a scorpion to one of my children. In fact, I killed that rascal to get it out of the house and you would too. So when Jesus says that, if he asks for an egg, you give him a scorpion? No, we wouldn't do that. What kind of people are we? Well, we're not that kind, that's for sure. We give our children what they need. If it's a fish, we give them a fish. If it's an egg, we give them an egg. And occasionally we give them ice cream, but I don't see that in the New Testament. So I guess we better go along there. Verse 13, if you then, though you are evil, oh, there he goes. Well, what's he saying? Well, he's saying that we certainly aren't God. He's saying we aren't perfect. He's recognizing that we are sinful people. He says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and we do, 
know how to give good gifts to our children. If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Here's the phrase, how much more will your father in heaven give? And let's stop right there. Now, up to that point, if we didn't know the end, and we do because we read it, and you're familiar with it, perhaps. Up until then, we would be getting the idea that, that Jesus is telling us that, that if, if we know how to do good for our kids, how much more does our Heavenly Father know how to do good for us? And he says it this way, how much more will your Father in heaven give? And now we want to know what's he going to give? Because if, if, if it's true, and it is, that we're not going to give our children snakes and scorpions, then how much more is God going to give us as his people what will benefit us and what we need? That how much more should not go unnoticed. Is it too much to say? No, it's not too much to say that God is the God of how much more. So he says, how much more? These are the words of Jesus too. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So if, if God gives us good things, then the Holy Spirit must be the best of those good things, because here Jesus flips the answer to something we had no reason to expect. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more will a good God give us the Holy Spirit? And that's what happened at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came and filled those people. The, the visible part of that was the, the fire. The audible part was the wind, reminiscent of the cloud of the Old Testament, reminiscent of covering and filling the tabernacle and filling the temple. Very similar idea that God comes because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. How much more? God has no reluctance to help to, um, to fill his people. No reluctance to give the Holy Spirit. And I've been thinking about that. How many times do we do we think that God is reluctant? How many times do we beg God? And you know, years ago, particularly, you would have people pray for a long time, either at an altar or over a period of weeks, seeking the Holy Spirit, seeking something. And you know, in retrospect, and in today's life, we need to stop and say, wait a minute, how much more Will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I guess we should be in the ask him business. What do you think? Does that make sense to you? That we should be asking God for that? That we should be asking God to give the Holy Spirit? Are we reluctant to ask? And it was a joyful thing when God met his people in all of those cases where the cloud and the fire were, were visible demonstrations. It was, a, it was a remarkable reason for rejoicing. Shouldn't it be just as much reason for rejoicing when we ask the Holy Spirit to come to us? 
how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, so we have every reason to ask the Father to give to us the Holy Spirit. And why not? So then I was thinking a little bit more about that and why not. Well, there's a passage in 1 Thessalonians, and there are a number of things that are mentioned in that chapter, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. But the one I remembered as I was thinking in the context of this was that it says in there, do not quench the Spirit. That's the way the New International Version says it. Um, the New Living Translation says, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. The Christian Standard Bible says the same thing, don't stifle the Spirit. Another English translation, the New English Translation says, do not extinguish the Spirit. Yikes. Do not pour cold water on the Spirit. Do not put the fire out. The message says, don't suppress the Spirit. So I'm thinking, okay, God showed himself present with his people repeatedly in the Old Testament. Sinai, ark, tabernacle, ark, temple, showed the demonstration to Ezekiel that, that Ezekiel described to us of the presence of God leaving and then returning. And then we come to Pentecost where God gives the gift that Jesus promised to his temples. Our physical bodies now become places that the Holy Spirit can fill. And God demonstrates in Luke chapter 11 what we read, that, that he's not reluctant, he's eager to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And then we read 1 Thessalonians 5.19, don't suppress the Spirit. And all of this tracing of God's work with his people, all of this leads me to this. Could it be that we, in fact, are suppressing the Spirit, that we, in fact, are reluctant to have the Spirit come? Now, we say we aren't, but stop and think about that. Are you eager? Are you as eager to receive as God is to give? How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then you put that side by side with the admonition from 1 Thessalonians 5.19, don't suppress the Spirit, do not quench the Spirit, don't stifle the Spirit, do not extinguish the Spirit. So today, could I ask you, are you ready to invite the Holy Spirit? Are you ready to trust God enough? Do you have absolute confidence that He's trustworthy, that you could pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come? For God is eager to come and dwell in the lives and in the midst of His people, and He does that in individuals today, differently than in temples of, of the Old Testament era, but just as significantly. Could it be that we don't see and experience the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit because we're too reluctant and we stifle, we suppress, we quench, we extinguish the Spirit of God? I ought to give you something to think about this week. 
And ask yourself, am I open to the Spirit? Are you brave enough? Would you be willing to pray? Would you just simply pray and, and ask the Lord and have confidence that He will answer and give the Holy Spirit, because he is eager to. It's not something he withholds. He is eager to do that. That's absolutely clear from the scriptures. Are you as eager to receive as he is to give? And could it be that our, our hang-ups, if you will, on the Holy Spirit are more about our reluctance and our stifling, quenching, extinguishing, suppressing than it is about God's willingness to give? Because God came to his people at Sinai, to his people at the tabernacle and to the temple, and he wants to come to us now. So faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Trust him enough to pray that prayer. Lord, send the Spirit to me. I'm ready to receive your good gift. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. So glad you could join us. I'll be back next week. See you then. <music>